This edition of Monocle on Sunday was first broadcast on the 13th of February 2022 at 10am CET. President Biden has told the Russian leader Vladimir Putin that the US and its allies will impose swift and severe costs if Russia invades Ukraine. It comes after an hour of talks between the leaders aimed at defusing the situation at the Ukrainian border. The Kremlin said that Washington had failed to consider Russia's main security concerns and dismissed US warnings of an attack as hysteria reaching its peak. Crowds of protesters have built up near to the Ambassador Bridge linking the Canadian province of Ontario with the US state of Michigan. Police managed to clear the area of big trucks, but a small number of pickup vehicles remain. The standoff has continued even after a court on Friday ordered an end to the demonstration. Swiss voters head to the polls today to weigh in on issues ranging from animal testing to media subsidies. Voters will decide whether or not to make Switzerland the first country to outlaw animal testing. A second initiative aims to ban tobacco and electronic cigarette adverts to wherever children and adolescents might see them. And opponents of a law providing 151 million Swiss francs in public funds to private media companies are attempting to scrap it via the referendum. Finally, Germany's North Sea coast has become home to the first retirement home for dairy cattle. Residents at the Hof Butenland farm include 38 cows destined for the slaughterhouse and Friedrich the pig who escaped from a livestock trailer. Karin and Jan Gerdes also provide a specialist nursing facility with diets for arthritic animals who can no longer keep up with the herd. And those are the headlines. It's time to head from the blustery gloom of a London Sunday morning to a bright, crisp Zurich morning where we can join our editorial director, Tyler Brule, for this week's episode of Monocle on Sunday. A very good morning to you, Tyler. Good morning, Emma. Do you have a webcam or something? How do you know it's crisp and sunny here? Uh, oh, I just have my sources. Okay. Well, you're absolutely right. You, you stole the opening line. Uh, I'm sorry. Where we come back in 90 seconds when this whole with this whole thing starts. Was the pig really called Frederick? The pig Frederick. really is called Frederick. And there's another one called Rosa who was rescued from a fattening facility. Uh-huh. And they just roam blissfully. I mean, like, bucolic doesn't even begin to describe the life of these things. But they get they get a diet which is not too dissimilar from for, for sort of like diets for the elderly anyway. Lots of sort of roughage and some chopped up apples and lots of water just to keep things going. Going. Is that also the February diet at the Nelson household as well? Um, it's a diet every single day. Oh, we have everything in the Nelson household. <laughs> we, st- we start off uh, we start off with virtue and then we just go down a slippery slope. Dinner, dinner at our, in our house starts at night, seven o'clock in the evening and finishes at bedtime. Emma, listen, <laughs> we will speak to you uh, in about 26 minutes time. Monocle on Sunday starts now. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Ahead over the next hour, I'll be joined around the desk here at Dufourstrasse 90 by two familiar voices. Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views, is here. And also Chandra Kurt, editor of the Wine Cellar Journal. But Rob is right beside me. Rob, what's caught your eye in the papers today? Oh, my gosh. It's hard to pull it all together. It's Ottawa, Odessa, Olympics, Omicron. Oh, my God. Love it. Uh, Also, we're going to be heading to Tokyo uh, and we'll also be talking to our Andrew Tuck, but first over to Fiona. Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. I'll be talking about how Japanese inns are surviving the downturn in tourism. 
More from Fiona a little bit later. Plus, we'll be heading to Copenhagen to see what is filling up bookshelves there. It's the 13th of February, 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from indeed a very crisp and sunny Zurich uh, this morning. Absolutely glorious uh, day. School holidays are starting here. The city may be emptying out a little bit. Very busy, though, uh, out in front of our uh, little perch here in Zurich. Also very happy to say here at our perch, Chandra Kurt is here this morning. It's been a while. Very nice to see you. Of course, wine contributor for us, but also uh, the editor of The Wine Cellar, which has just recently uh, been redesigned, had a bit of a relaunch, a bit of a facelift, uh, you could say. Good morning first. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, tell us, uh, what's the response been to the redesigned magazine? <clears throat> Actually, it was very good. Uh, I never got so many emails to, to, to respond. And a few of, of elderly readers, they thought it became too modern, too shining, a little bit too too dynamic, because what we did, we took a existing chapter and we opened them up so the stories can flow far, so you can make them bigger or more 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 in more directions. And so, but in, in general, it's very positive. And tomorrow we go to print with, with the next the next issue of the new design. So I'm all excited. Okay, listen, we'll be talking a lot about uh, various titles uh, going to print as well. We'll be checking with Andrew uh, in a moment. He's had a, a rather a rather big week and maybe another big week ahead. Uh, Rob Cox, as we heard at the start of the program, also here. Also been a long time. Where, where have you been? A little bit of New York, a little bit of Rome. Uh, a little bit of everything, but also a fair amount of Zurich, you know, just hunkering down, trying to make sense of the world, which is not, not particularly easy at the moment. Oh, you gave us a world of O's at the start. Do you want to choose one of them? Do we want do we want to start with Odessa first, or do we we want to maybe just say that you know, Omicron's hopefully going to be behind us uh, when uh, we well, see I'm, some measures hopefully lifted in Switzerland? Yeah, week, I mean, I mean, certainly everyone's mind is on what's going on in Ukraine, and uh, of course Odessa is a port city in, in Ukraine, and lots of uh, Russian f- the fleet was kind of rolling in to take to take a sort of look uh, uh, at the the southern coast of U- of Ukraine. I mean, it's all. It's all hard to, to put. It's it's hard to pull it all together, and I'm and that's why the people like us are are employed, I suppose. But you know, I think about what's happening in your home country in Ottawa. I see these protests and uh, along the the, the uh, Ambassador Bridge is that what it's called between Detroit and uh, Windsor, Ontario. Um, all of it just seems to be of a piece. Like there is this there's this sort of there's this sense out there that that Democrat Democrat. I know liberal democracies are flailing. And so what you have are these uprisings all over the place. And people like Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, seem to be taking advantage of it. People like Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, are 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 really flailing and floundering. Joe Biden. I mean, it's all it's all kind of seems to me somehow connected. And I think that there is a sense that I don't know whether it was mask mandates or vaccine mandates or just general fatigue with a couple of years of living with this pandemic have really taken a toll on humanity. Mm. Uh, Andrew is uh, with us uh, in London uh, this morning uh, as well. Uh, Andrew, you, of course, heard the start of the program. Uh, Rob had all of his uh, various O headlines. Do you have an O headline for us uh, as well out of the UK today? Well, uh, just to chime in, the the the, the serious papers, the, the the big heavyweights are all leading with the Ukraine story as well. And this, you know, how often do we get you know build? You know, war will start on Wednesday, as though it was it was being scheduled for like a a, a Netflix debut or something. So, but yes, it's that that's the key uh, uh, story here. But just picking up on Emma's story, I, we went out for dinner last night and uh, a bit of a fattening facility here it was as well last night. But just picking up on the other O there, it's, it, it's funny. It's, it, it was one of those restaurant scenes where it was absolutely rammed. I didn't see a mask in action. And it's, it's funny how 
quickly this has fizzled out here in London, how, how the city is in the last 10 days just really turned a corner. It's, it was really exciting to be out last night. You've heard that from everyone, Andrew. It's just, it's, um, it's really interesting. Yeah, whether yeah, last seven days, last week, or last ten days, um, just exactly that. Uh, that that the buzz is is back. Of course, it, you've been on. Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily a campaign bus, but certainly a commentary uh, bus as well. But what that has meant, of course, um, for yeah, you know, for for offices um, and for of course pockets and stretches of, of London uh, where people uh, are supposed to be going to into office towers and buildings. What's your reflection when you look? at also the, the ebb and flow of, of, of the commuter hours? Well, you know, it, it's a little bit hypocritical, but when I speak to the, the, you know, the team of, of a morning, you know, we have a, you know, the conversation turns to the, you know, the commute because I'm interested to know what those numbers are. Lots of people said last week, oh, my God, it was back to standing room only. The, you know, the, the, the tubes were really busy. I'm going to have to go a bit earlier if I don't want to be on a packed train. So I think numbers are coming back. But what I don't know is whether they're still running fewer trains. So it may be more people are slightly squeezed on. And there's definitely, you know, I know friends whose you know, companies are still back only a couple of days a week or are still in the process of returning to office. And some people who work in, in government or in civil service where they've been told that effectively you won't come back to the office. So something has changed. We won't go back to the numbers of people on the streets we had maybe two years ago. But I don't know, it just feels, you you see more people with, you know, with maps in their hands. Tourists are definitely back wandering in the streets. The restaurants are full because, you know, we we tried to book something for last night and it, it took a good hour or so to find someone that had a reservation available. Um, just, uh, I want to uh, bring uh, Chandra in in on this uh, as well. Chandra, you've had a couple of aborted uh, starts to London. Uh, we've always sort of, you know, heard you en route, rooms booked, uh, etc. Uh, when you hear this uh, from from Andrew, you sort of. Uh, yeah, itching to maybe make your way to Cloton to get on a plane right after this? Well, believe me, I can hardly wait to go back to London. So, But I took the easier way the last month. I went to Italy. It was a little bit easier to go there. And I, I indeed cancelled two times London. But uh, but I'm very, very happy that it's, that it's slowly opening up. Rob, you, you um, of course, uh, head down to Italy quite a bit. Are we facing a bit of a, a two-track Europe at the moment? Because on one side, you know, if you look to the north of Europe, almost it's the periphery of Europe, isn't it? We've seen Norway now. We, of course, have got Sweden. You know, Denmark was leading the way, of course, with, with really saying, you know, this is done. It, we're, we're really finished with it. Of course, UK as well. But you come to the core of Europe, there's a big question here in Switzerland uh, whether they're going to go for a, a two-phase opening. Yeah, things are generally fine here. The, you know, the, you know, masks still in stores, etc. Uh, you know, are a bit of annoyance. So we'll hear on Wednesday what happens there. But then, of course, we've heard from Spain and Italy; they're just lifting mask requirements for outdoors yeah. at the moment. So, do you think that this, uh, you know, is there a point where everyone comes together quite quickly? Is it going to compress, or are we still going to see this two-track Europe? Do you think? Oh, I think we'll still see a, a bit of a two-track, but it's all relative. Like, so if you think about Italy, you were supposed to wear a mask walking down the street in Rome or Milan, you know, outside for quite some time. The fact that they're relaxing these. Things is a big deal. The the fact that you know traveling back and forth, you don't you're not required to have the same kind of testing regime that you had before. I think it'll all coalesce pretty quickly. So while the UK, by the way, never never really enforced any of the rules that it had, as far as I could tell, um, it, or it did it very very sporadically. Um, 
you know, they, I just think that the, the, the Italians also, or some of the other countries, have 80% plus vaccination rates. I think that's a hat tip to some of these actually did work. I mean, if you said, look, you need to have um, this pass to get in and have a nice meal. We're not closing the restaurant, but you need to follow these rules. People just said, oh, the hell with it. And they went and got their vaccinations. I think that was that's a big difference in places like, I don't know, the U.S., for instance, instance which didn't do that. And we still have pockets in which they're the the the... the Omicron is raging, or mm. some variation is raging. It's it's interesting because some of our readers will have received, uh, of course, a newsletter which, uh, well, inviting them to uh, an event in Los Angeles that we're having uh, in in a couple of weeks. That'll be to launch our our Nordics book. So, and it was interesting. I was just looking at you know the, the various procedures and and the run of what that evening is going to be. But in Los Angeles, you know, there you still have to show a pass. I mean, which is not yeah. the case in many other corners and of, that's of the, Los Angeles County. Correct. Which is funny. So if you go outside of L.A. County, which, you know, Los Angeles sprawls. It, it is kind of come down to more localized restrictions. New York City, for instance, still has some that are that are not uh, you don't see in other parts of New York. That said, you have Connecticut, my home state, New Jersey. These were these were let's say they could have been the uh, the real nanny states around the vaccinations and around um, the rules. They've all relaxed. So, it, I mean, we're there. I want to uh, go back to Ukraine in a moment, but Andrew, I want to to bring you in and get everyone's uh, point of view on something. And this was in the news headlines uh, from Emma a bit earlier. We, it's, it is yet another referendum day here in Switzerland. One of, of course, the big uh, topics which is being tabled, uh, which is uh, a, a potential ban on tobacco advertising. A lot of people will hear that going, wow, there's still tobacco advertising in Switzerland. There is. Uh, and of course, um, it should be banned uh, anywhere that, uh, that yeah, let's say youngsters could be um, exposed to it. Now, Chandra, you'll probably be familiar. There's been posters everywhere which have been saying, look, at first it's like a booze ban uh, and on on advertising next it's going to be sausages or, or it could be uh, schnapps or some something else what is what is your take on this so, you know this is indicative of our times or is this really you know again a bit of a freedom of speech issue when it comes to yeah also as well you could also argue also a sector which has been very important to switzerland tobacco all of the big multinationals also based here as well well, in general, I'm against bans of things. I think there should be a common sense of each of, of, of us to, to deal with it. And I, vo- I voted against, of course, against this, this um, ban. And it's an interesting evolution. There is now a discussion in the EU about doing something on the labeling of wine. So maybe wine will be the next that we can't do any wine advertising. So I think it's going in the wrong direction. Yeah, Andrew. Um, of course, we don't have anything like that in the UK. You know, there was. The, listen, I can think back to probably the, the time when both of us were writing for uh, for magazines uh, for glossies uh, in in the UK, and and a lot of. You could almost maybe argue, Andrew, a lot of those very interesting titles that we did write for, uh, you know, in in the early '90s, probably were depending a lot on having uh, those. Yeah, I mean, whether they were Lucky Strike ads or Dunhill or whatever was the front, was incredibly important from a revenue point of view. That's all gone now. Um, but uh, but what's your take on on this, or or maybe just slightly surprised that uh, it's you know, the Switzerland so late to the party. Well, it's it's always interesting when you land in Zurich and you come through the airport and there's these beautiful kind of smoking rooms there sponsored (laughs) by the the, the major cigarette manufacturers and brands. So uh, cigarette smoking has always had a slightly different uh, take in, in Switzerland. I'm a bit torn because you know, I understand that the, free, you know, the, the the need to be able to kind of tell people about products that are not illegal that you you can purchase. But in the end of the day, I think you know, the, the 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 impact on health services, the, the the fact that advertising works. We know advertising works; otherwise, people wouldn't do it. So it does 
both recruit and reinforce. People, you know, the, the, the cigarette companies claim it just moves people between brands. I don't think so. I think advertising, good advertising, encourages you into use. So I'm not saying it's, it's a, you know, you see one ad and you suddenly start smoking, but it makes it appealing. It makes it more acceptable. So I think it's just the way of the world, you know, as somebody who has had more than one cheeky cigarette in his life, um, I, I'm, I understand why people want to smoke. But I don't think in the end that it can be sustained in a long way. And then you, know, you look at really radical decisions. You look at somewhere like New Zealand, where they say they're going to bring in a ban so that effectively it becomes illegal for people to smoke. You, you're, each age category from now on in a couple of years' time will be banned from even purchasing cigarettes. So um, I don't think it's such a tough move in Switzerland, to be honest. Mm, Rob, uh, your, your thought on that? Well, I remember when they when they brought these bands into the states, uh, you know, and that, and uh, there was a period where Camel was doing the Camel Joe, and it was like cl- so clearly designed to appeal to younger, the next generation of customers, shall we say? Mm. So they were they, they were a little cheeky, the, the the tobacco companies. They got hit for it, but it's kind of funny. I was in the states uh, over 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 break at Christmas, driving through Massachusetts, which has legalized marijuana and cannabis, and I was noticing all the the, the billboards for like, you know, get off, stop 11A, Chicopee, Massachusetts and get your weed, you know, all this all over the place. And, you know, it's, a, it's the next it's the next frontier, I suppose. But I mean, I didn't they didn't ask me to vote. I'm not a Swiss uh, citizen, Chandra. So um, but I suppose I I probably would have demurred and not not voted in favor of bans in general because I don't believe in bans. I would have thought just jack up the prices to 15 exactly. francs a pack. It's going to be real hard for kids to f- afford and all that extra money is going to go to taxes to help people with their lung cancer. Mm. Let's just maybe move very quickly to another topic, which is a universal one. Uh, and, and again, I think probably some people will be surprised to hear this and, and many will also know that uh, you know, media subsidies uh, are, are not uh, you know, such a, an oddity in many countries uh, across uh, Europe. And this is a, a really something which is also has been confronting voters uh, here, Chandra, as well, that whether uh, you are a, a newspaper or a small media outlet, whether you should be still, whether you should get subsidies from the government or not, and and of course we see across the EU as well. This is something which is also a little bit par for the course. Uh, what what is your take on on that? And is it is it important to someone like the wine seller, for example? No, we, we are very. I mean, I'm a it's very small publication, but this was a difficult one for me because I really I, I can I can feel better maybe both sides because I'm into publishing and not into smoking um but i don't know you know i have this belief that that you should be able to support yourself and to build yourself and and, and to go but i also want that media, media survives and and if there is help for media i will always support this too so so it, it's yeah i have both sides mm. andrew what's your take on that because it's not um you, you see of course there's funding for the arts etc but it's not something uh, where you're able to, uh, you know, of course, uh, apply. And, and certainly maybe there might have been a moment before when the UK was part of the EU uh, that you could have gone for some type of, of subsidy. But uh, your take on uh, yeah, state support for the regional newspaper, and that's obviously, you know, maybe that's also what Chandra's pointing to, areas of real crisis where, of course, we've seen whether it is the power of marketplace platforms, et cetera, have taken away uh, yeah, the, the all-important, uh, of course, classified advertising that would have been you know, absolutely key to a local paper before if you wanted to buy a bicycle or you wanted to sell your old VW Golf, whatever it was. Uh, what's your view on that? Well, it becomes tricky, doesn't it, when, it's, when central government is 
putting in place the the money that supports regional newspapers or any newspapers you know it becomes quickly open to accusations of interference and of political sway you know if the conservatives put up the money to prop up five regional newspapers do they owe a debt in some way so it becomes a little bit murky and i think in the end these these things have to stand on their own two feet but what i do think that, that, that there has to be is 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 fairness around this and what's, what we see again and again is for all newspaper groups whether they're national or local or you know, regional, they, they, the information they generate is then picked up by, and scooped up by the, the big platforms, pumped out for free. You know, even their stories get so widely pushed around that, that there's no reason to go to their sites. So I think that what we, we, what I am keen to see is, which is being pressured in Europe, and also the, a debate here is, you know, how does Facebook actually recompense media groups for what for what they're they're using and taking? We've seen some pr- progress on this, but it's always so damn slow. That's what would help these these regional newspapers. Rob, um, your view, I and mean, also again, same story. Of course, uh, you know, you also you maybe say same story, but also point of origin as well. When you look at, of course, the the big U.S. players, the big digital players that have maybe been part of all of this, and especially again in that regional story, and not even just regional. You look at a lot of big city dailies in the U.S. now, which you know we've seen like the likes of McClatchy a while ago, of course. I mean, going into Chapter 11, uh, it then being sold for next to nothing, considering the portfolio. Um, Basically, one hedge fund r- owns yeah, exactly. all of the major yeah. metropolitan newspapers. I mean, it is, it's is—it's a problem for democracy, right? And I, I do have a lot of sympathy for this question. I don't know how the how you deal with it, how the, the, the economics work, but the economics were taken away by Google, taken away by Facebook, taken away by the, the end of the classified ad, as you, as you described it at the top. Th- that's all gone. You don't then have people going out to the local community board covering the local scandals, keeping an eye on officials locally and that kind of thing. And I think that's, that's, we lose a lot when that happens. And it's happened over the last 20 years. No surprise if you look at what, what's happened in American politics and civil life. I think there is some, some relevance to that. How you deal with it? I mean, subsidies from the government, tough one, right? It's hard to say. But again, I think back to those those platforms, whether it's Google Alphabet, uh, Facebook. These guys have got a lot of money. They've, they've done it mostly voluntarily because they know. They see the writing on the wall. We've taken away the economics from something that's critical to democracy. We better do something about it. You know, but I don't, I don't think they're anywhere near to, to solving the problem or even filling partial, part of the hole that they, that they help create. So, I, I mean... I'm, I'm in, I mean, it's weirdly, I'm not a fit. I don't love subsidies. I don't love government, but something's got to be done there. Mm. I mean, Andrew also probably, I mean, of course, many listeners will also know that the likes of Facebook and, uh, and Google also have programs for, for journalism, uh, as well. And there you see a lot of other outlets, of course, uh, you know, taking, uh, yeah, taking, you could sort of, you could say subsidies as well from the private sector in, in, in that sense as well. Is that how it has to go? Do we see more legislation that they're going to have? to share the pie with if I'm a small Norwegian newspaper or I happen to be a, yeah, a, a title in the U.S. Southeast? Well, again, it's how you divide the money and who gets what is, is difficult. And because often the, what's happening is the, the, the bigger media players, and we saw this in Australia, is, is that the bigger media organizations that have have the weight and the, even just the teams to negotiate what that would look like. If you're a small, you know, two, three-person operation, you're an independent out in the regions, then even tapping into that is going to be very difficult. In the end, I think what we've seen, Tyler, is, you know, the, you know and you often send me the names of papers for me to check out, and we do this in our Outpost News section in the Monocle Weekend edition on a Saturday, is that actually 
there are people who have found a way of doing regional news that, that generates an, enough income. Uh, many of them have moved to pure subscription models. But they have, have, there is a new generation of these, these, these newspapers starting up, not all daily, often weekly, often with a digital kind of footprint as well, where they're not making a fortune, but they're beginning to tell local stories again in a detailed way and doing stuff that actually the big players can't do. So I'm not completely uh, uh, you know, concerned that all of these regional newspapers are going to suffer and vanish and need subsidies. It feels to me that there are people who... Often an old school journalist goes back to a city and town, sees there's no newspaper and begins to work out how you, you put in place something that serves the community and generates some money. Mm. We're going to move um, to uh, certainly one of the um, more interesting parts of, of this uh, let's Sunday uh, media outlet, which, of course, is when you turn to the pages, turn to the segment, of course, which is our, our wine component. And it's great that Chandra is, is, uh, is, is here today. Um, Andrew, I'm going to start with you. Uh, and because you, you know how, uh, after almost two years of doing this, uh, how, how this works, you give Chandra a brief. And, of course, uh, Chandra is going to tell you, you know, what you need you know, for what I think, Andrew, it's going to be quite a, we have a very, very busy week ahead of us as well oh my gosh well, a, you, 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 you arrive tomorrow we have uh, uh, quite a lot of <laughs> meetings in the book we're, 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 we're actually discussing some big kind of media concept ideas uh, we have a yet another book that's almost ready to go out the door which I hope to uh, take you through uh, yeah it's going to be a, a big whirlwind of a week so we're, we're looking forward to to seeing you but um, Chandra, maybe for 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 me, let's start with something simple today. You know, the season is turning. There is a, a bit of gaiety back in the air. Um, what's what's the, the kind of first wines that you turn to as as spring hits? What are the wines that give you a bit of hope that sunshine's around the corner? Something that just makes us feel, oh, yes, it's all going to be okay. Okay, but just to let you know, there's nothing simple about you. So, but I will find a, a simple something simple. <laughs> Thank you. Very good, uh, Rob. Uh, over, over, over to you. Okay, I was going to be really, really kind of gloomy and ask you for something to celebrate the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But no, I, please not. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, fondue. I'm I, I'm not yet there at the spring. I'm going out and having fondue today. What what should I order? What wine should I have with fondue? I, I feel that that's Chandra's like probably got that nail. This is like so right. easy. I mean, this I was, is like a rookie question, but yeah. I, I do need to know. Absolutely, uh, Emma Nelson uh, is uh, is over in London. Not quite with the news yet. That's in three minutes. Uh, but uh, but but the wine briefing first. Good morning, Chandra. It's Good lovely morning. to hear your voice on the radio again. Um, quick question: I have to go on a train today. I have a three-hour journey on my own. What is a discreet but nice small bottle for a woman to travel alone on a train with, so that she arrives at her destination? reasonably upright and doesn't look a little bit socially unacceptable on a train. I'm not sure there's anything, but I will. I have a moment to see. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, just before we go, uh, Rob uh, and, and Andrew, as, as Andrew was saying, Rob, at the top of this, I mean, we, we're almost seeing, yeah, a, a hard start uh, to put to a potential, yeah, I mean, let's just call it invasion. I mean, it would be the start of, of a war. Um, is, this, is this still a little bit of overreach uh, and, and in terms of uh, maybe what they're saying in, in Washington, because but this has come in now, which is very different from what we heard uh, a week, 10 days ago. This is also KLM canceling flights now to the country. We've now seen you know, most, uh, you know, at least many countries, of course, asking their nationals now to leave, not just clearing out their embassies. 
Yeah, it feels certainly has always felt like a bit of overreach by the Biden administration. I mean, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, is out there saying, "Oh my God, get out there!" There's this, there's talk that the U.S. is actually calling its people on the ground, any American citizen, saying, "Get the hell out." I mean, look, it, th- this is all part of the saber rattling for sure. I personally, I'm, I mean, I joke about this being like this is like the end. Of, we're at the sort of precipice of something, and it certainly feels that way. But there is a, there is a, I have, I take some, um, you know, succor from the idea of looking at the idea that do the what? What does Russia do once they take Ukraine? Like, like, what's the long term play here? I, I have a hard time seeing how this, you know is a great move for Putin. I see right now how he is making everybody sort of bend to his will and the, and, and NATO and the EU and the US, everybody is sort of saying, oh my God, you know, that he's showing us that we've got some problems, that Western democracies aren't working very well. And we're not very, we're fragmented. We're not, we're not really speaking in one mind. We still haven't got Olaf Scholz saying anything really about Nord Stream 2, these kinds of things. But I, I got to feel like he's, in a sense, he's like the dog that catches the car. What do you do once you put the bumper in your teeth? And I don't I don't mm. see the long-term play. So, so I'm relatively sanguine about it, despite all the noise. Andrew, I mean, you mentioned, of course, this is all over the, the main papers uh, in the UK, certainly the, the, the main daily record. And of course, if you're watching um, the screens as we are as well um, from studio, yeah, this, this is the story. If you look at it from a media point of view, Andrew, do you feel that we've moved to a further footing than where we were five five, seven days ago? Well, it's just so fascinating. We have the, the UK Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, you know, saying there's a whiff of Munich about this, this, this moment. You have President Zelensky saying, just keep calm. I'm sure it's going to be okay. We, we've seen this before. So the bit that fascinates me in here is, is how the US is using information as part of its operations against the Russians. Every little bit of information it has, it puts out as a press release. And while U.S. journalists are asking to see some proof of these things, it's, it's actually doing quite good at putting Putin on the spot. And apparently in, in Russian circles, they're, they're concerned that actually some of the things that he's putting out in press releases, Biden's putting out in press releases, you cannot get from just satellite images of watching troop movements or watch what's happening on the, the Belarusian or the Russian border. They believe that there is intelligence coming from directly within Russian military circles that is being hinted at in these reports. So it, it's just fascinating how the U.S. is using this, whether it will work in the long term. I do think it has made it more complicated, oddly, for Putin to, to do some of the maneuvers that he was hoping to do. Andrew, uh, we'll catch up uh, with you a little bit later in the program, of course, uh, to, uh, of course, find out uh, what wine you should be purchasing uh, for uh, for your Sunday afternoon. Also, I think you'll have a little bit of a of a recap, as you said, not just what's being shipped out the door, but hopefully uh, there's a plane winging its way from northern Germany with a very, very exciting issue uh, as well. It's gone at 10.31 here in Zurich, 9.31 uh, in London. Emma Nelson's there with the news headlines. Thank you, Tyler. President Biden has told the Russian leader Vladimir Putin that the US and its allies will impose swift and severe costs if Russia invades Ukraine. The Kremlin says that hysteria has reached its peak in Washington. Swiss voters head to the polls today to weigh in on issues ranging from animal testing to media subsidies. Voters will decide whether or not to make Switzerland the first country to outlaw animal testing. A second initiative aims to ban tobacco and electronic cigarette adverts where children and adolescents might see them and opponents of a law providing 151 million Swiss francs in public funds to private media companies are attempting to scrap it via the referendum. And if you are a Texan looking for a Valentine's Day gift, try Go to Graham Waco. It's currently 
simply offering you the chance to send your loved one a little goaty friend to cuddle for up to an hour. For $99, the goat will also bring you flowers or chocolates. And those are the headlines. Back to you in Zurich, Tyler. This raises so many questions. So <laughs> flowers and chocolate, are there saddlebags? This is what I, 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 want, I want to know. What happens also after an hour if I get to minute 75 and I don't want to give the goat up? Then do we have a, like a, a Waco SWAT team coming to the house? <laughs> What's going on? Thinking, there, I, I, have you spent any time on Goatogram yet? Just I think you might cause a bit of a Terms scene. and conditions, please. Well, look, I mean, I was just thinking about the fact that the goat turns up on your doorstep. And for starters, the last thing I would ever consider doing would be dispatch, dispatching a live goat to the Brulee household, simply because of the damage that it could do to your parquet, to your lovely furnishings. I mean, if it's got the flowers, it'll have eaten them by the time it's got through the door. It's going to come up with a couple of rose petals and a few thorny thorny crumbs coming out of its mouth. Um, I'm, I'm not a massive fan, but I do know that if we were to send you a goat, I think it might be quite hard to get it out of your clutches. Yeah, I th- I, I, <laughs> for sure. And as I've told you as well, I am also the owner of, well, at least a part-time owner of some goats that I've adopted um, who are living somewhere in the Berner Oberland. Have you so met we, them that, yet? That, haven't met them yet. Uh, that's going to be, that's going to be, a, it's a field trip. Mm. Um, in, Are you being in, a bit of an spring. absentee godfather here? <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> I, I, I'm not even, listen, I, we, 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 that's going to be a, probably a small mini documentary. <laughs> Emma, we'll catch up to you a little bit later. It's uh, just gone uh, 1833 in Tokyo. It's 1033 here in Zurich. It's also uh, the same time up in Copenhagen uh, where we're heading now, actually a little bit north of Copenhagen. We're heading up towards Hellerup uh, right now to speak to Isabella Musavizade Smith, um, owner and founder of Books and Company, a place that we spent a little bit of time uh, back at the end of May, uh, June, uh, when we had a, a book that we were launching then. Uh, and uh, it's very, very good to, to have you on the program. Good morning, Isabella. Good to be with you, Tyler. I'm not sure how I can follow up on that whole goat story though yeah um, I, listen i but... listen as, as you know i mean Isabel, if you go to tokyo as well i mean you know they've got the owl cafes i mean cat cafes or old news there are and there of course there are goat cafes so listen you know I, there's you know you're not short of livestock is, in denmark that's definitely so. next level for us we're going to be doing that <laughs> uh, so, tell but us, it's uh, good to be back and uh, things are looking great here and um we're sort of very excited for a brighter year um, with lifting of restrictions and hope to see the back of Corona very soon. And uh, we actually had a really great um, event yesterday at the shop. We had a wedding in the store, which has never happened before. And it definitely feels like a new beginning. Uh, two of our customers asked if they could get married there. And we said yes. Um, and I felt like that was just such a milestone for an independent bookshop um, that values community. So that was wonderful, and just uh, just before Valentine's Day, so that was perfect. Um, I, I'm gonna have, and, I have to stop. I have to stop yeah. you there. So this is, is was this yeah. a civil ceremony? Was did you have to? Yeah. Was there a marquee out front because you do have that nice little it space? Was, how, how did yeah, how did you do it? I think people are going to be very interested in this as well. Well, we actually we did a. Um, they contacted us a few well a month ago, and uh, and they they organized everything with um, the. With the, uh, it was a civil civil ceremony. They found a guy who did it, and he was wearing a robe and everything. It was very official, and uh, we took care of. I took care of the cake. I, I don't. I don't think wedding planner is in my future, but uh, it was. It was actually really lovely, and uh, we had beautiful beautiful flowers everywhere, and a small group of people, and they just wanted to be. They just wanted to be among books and stories, and uh, they're both in the. They're both actors. So they'd met on on stage uh, playing Shakespeare, I think. And I think it was just it was just a wonderful ceremony. And 
so lovely. So that's, we, and we did, and she'd even cut up little, she'd cut up books to make confetti. So we had, they were throwing con, book confetti outside. It was just, everything was just very themed. I'm, I am hearing a full uh, business extension here. Well, now, did, 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 this, did this also demand a minimum spend? Uh, did, did, of course, uh, uh, yes, uh, yeah, from from whoever was organizing uh, this or at least yeah. paying the bill, did you say, look, they all, there also has to be a decent-sized tote bag for all wedding guests as well? They did. They did actually suggest that themselves. They they have tote bags. They ordered tote bags and books that were about love and uh, marriage, and so that was all done ahead of time as well. Yeah, we did that. Very good. Uh, tell us, uh, what's uh, been flying off uh, the shelves, or at least what are you yeah, recommending? Well, they may not be flying off the shelves, but we're, you know, yeah. it feels like we're coming out of winter. I was in Copenhagen a few weeks ago. It was still feeling a bit blustery. I mean, here, at least in the heart of middle Europa, it's feeling very, very sunny. I, I think they're fooling us, though. I think we know that uh, mid-Feb is, is always that moment uh, when, of course, yeah. uh, winter could come back and smack you again. But uh, what's been keeping the Danes uh, cozy at home with, uh, with reeds, anyway? I think, you know, January and February are always such fun, funny months because people are also making their way through the stacks that they bought for Christmas. Um, and lots of new paperbacks come out in January after the publishers have sold all their hardbacks for Christmas. So lots of new paperback titles, but also a lot of new stuff coming at, in, in Feb and March and April. And I feel like there is such a sense of lots of diverse and interesting stories coming out now. It's as if it's really people need to leave the last two years behind and are just bursting out in really interesting uh, genre-defying um, titles as well. Um, so lots of good books. And one of the most anticipated, of course, at the beginning of the year was To Paradise by Hanya Yanakihira, who was, who was the author of A Little Life, which a lot of people have read a few years ago. It's a veritable tome. It's 700-plus pages, three books spanning three centuries. Fascinating story. Um, so that's one of the books that's well, it doesn't fly because it's so big, but it is, it's been very popular. Um, for something lighter, I think a lot of people, myself included, looking forward to reading uh, The Maid by Nita Prose, which is a classic murder mystery set in a sort of a grand hotel. And for something a little bit different and that I don't recommend that often because I don't read it that often, but is historical fiction. It's a book in a very different setting and a different time. It's a book called I Must Betray You by a, an author called Ruta Sepetis. And she writes historical fiction, and her new book is about a young man who is blackmailed to become an informant by the secret police in communist Romania. And that, I think, is going to be one of the big books of the year, or at least the first half of the year. Um, and the beginning of the year, typically, of course, is when lots of people want to change their habits, change lifestyles, become healthier, happier, and try to figure out how they can improve on their lives. So we sell lots of books in those genres. And the ones that really have been flying off the shelf right now, Atomic Habits, which is actually not new, uh, but it is super popular right now by James Clear. Um, and two more recently published is Stolen Focus by Johan Hari, which is about why we have such a hard time focusing. Um, and then The Power of Regret by Daniel Pink, which is also um, is very popular right now. And then because we have such a large selection of nonfiction, so politics, history, economics, etc., we have a great deal of interest right now in, in books that reflect the issue of the moment, namely the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, Russia, United States, and Europe. So we sell lots of books uh, about that right now, older and newer titles, actually. And people are doing lots of research in, 
in, in that. So that's really interesting. So Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny is one that we recommend a lot, which is quite interesting. And um, A Short History of Russia, which is also very, very good. Now, and listen, then, I, I, I was just going to ask you just very quickly. Now, if, if yeah. people can't send a go-to-gram uh, uh, in Hellerup or, or to, yeah. to someone uh, yeah. over in Aarhus, um, anything for Valentine's? Because uh, we haven't touched yeah. a lot on Valentine's, of course, I tomorrow. Would, not go, yep. go for it. I would say I really like Conversations on Love uh, by Natasha Lund, which is a collection of interviews on love, relationships, friendship, and romance. Really nice. It's a book that you can... It's not one you read to, need to read from beginning to end. You can just dive into it, grab a really nice story, and it will just, it's, it's a lot of really lovely moments and reflections. And then another one, which is older, but I really like, which if people haven't read, is Modern Love, which is edited by Daniel Jones, and it's essays from the New York Times uh, Modern Love column, which turned podcast, turned streaming series. But the book is actually really, really lovely. So I would, um, those two, I think, are just such nice books to give for Valentine's Day. A lot of people give poetry, uh, which is also lovely. Uh, but I think these are, they're nice and they, you know, they're very fitting for a lot of different people, I would say. And then, of course, we have the Monaco Book of the Nordics. I will have mm. to mention that before we go, because we love it. I will say the cover is just popping. It looks amazing. And it's so nice to have in February in a shop, something that's blue and really has like these great colors and graphics on the front and we've sold almost all of the copies we got in oh we one, like this we like the sound of that it's going to be I'm a delight saying. of course to our creative yes. uh, creative directors yes. ears yes. uh as, as well isabella i think we have to probably um yeah plan plan a little something uh because yes. as you said every listen we we you know you you deserve a retailer's award that we managed to pull that event off um you know <laughs> really at the height of wherever <laughs> they went strange yeah. again that we that we managed yes. to do that uh, at, at the start of last summer was was fantastic but we'll uh, we'll be checking in again with you uh as well uh, of course over the coming weeks but hopefully seeing you in person in Copenhagen. That was Isabella Musavizade Smith, uh, owner and founder of Books and Company uh, in Copenhagen, just a little bit up the track, up in uh, Hellerup. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. We're heading to Tokyo uh, in a moment, but first, a short break. Tune in to Monocle on Culture, where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film, music, art, literature, and more. It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. I appreciate that in 2020, some of the most brilliant art, most of it, grounds you in this moment and makes you confront it. With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed. Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in <laughs> your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 2000 London time here on Monocle 24 and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Tyler Brule, that's my name. Uh, also, Rob Cox is here, Chandra Kurt as well. Uh, and we're heading over to Tokyo uh, right now because our Fiona Wilson, our bureau chief, uh, is standing by. Uh, Fiona, good afternoon. 
Good afternoon. Good evening from here, actually. Yeah. Well, listen. Before before we start, because we have to give Chandra a bit of a bit of time as well. Um, I, I believe it's not so easy for you to get um, it, back and forth to the shop at the moment. So I'm not sure what's happening in the in the Wilson wine cellar. But maybe just uh, you can start off by uh, giving Chandra your brief for, for what you're looking for to maybe uh, pour at some point over the coming hours. Yeah, I think, uh, Chandra, I need something to drown my sorrows. Um, I'm about to embark on a second week of uh, isolation. I'm perfectly healthy, but uh, two children with COVID means that I also have to isolate. So anything that can cheer me up, all recommendations, welcome. Okay, Okay, John John is going to work on that, Fiona. Uh, Maybe maybe tell us, uh, of course, you're a great uh, fan of the Olympics. Of course, you became our unofficial Olympic correspondent, uh, given what happened uh, in Tokyo, uh, of course, uh, all of those those months ago. Uh, Maybe just from a a Japan perspective, uh, there's been a few, of course, uh, interesting wins. But um, how is Japan viewing the Olympics again, because it's still living with this hangover as a country, or certainly Tokyo is. Uh, And then, of course, you've got something you know quite kind of quite bizarre viewing uh sometimes over uh, in in and around beijing yeah i mean it's quite bizarre viewing but i have to say people in japan you know we, we love the olympics here you know so actually and there is a lot of japanese interest i mean you know japan massive amount of skiing snowboarding loads of alpine sports so there's a lot of interest you know and you know japan does well in all sorts of areas um you know, you've seen that the big hill jumper, um, Mr. Kobayashi, I saw he won gold. And and, I, and one thing I had noticed, which which made me smile, is that ha- just how many uh, sets of siblings are in the Japan team. It turns out that one-sixth of the team are siblings. You know, there are 10 sets. And I thought it was quite interesting that, you know, it probably is quite tough. Uh, the quarantine, the bubble looks fairly horrific for the Beijing Olympics. But I thought wouldn't be so bad if you had a brother or sister with you. So maybe that's why Japan isn't doing so badly. So interesting. So 10 sets of siblings. Uh, and, and, and also, so you might get, you know, one family who, but, you know, completely different disciplines uh, as well. Well, actually, I have to say almost consistently the same discipline. So I don't know if you saw Ayumu Hirano, who's the amazing snowboarder who got gold in the half pipe. There's me sounding like a sports professional. But his brother Kaishu was also in the final as well. Um, he didn't get a medal, but uh, Ayumi got uh, gold. And then you've got, you know, the sis- sisters who are speed skaters. You've got a couple of snowboarders. The the ice hockey team, which brilliantly is called Smile Japan, has to have a name, doesn't it? Um, there there are three sets of siblings in that team. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a family affair, I think, for Japan. Okay, listen, hold the phone. I'm concerned because you've got two kids in isolation. Are you going to become one of those parents now by the time they get out? Uh, you know, bo- both of yours are going to have speed skates strapped on and you're going to be that, that, that mom in the bobble hat around the track? Do you know what? The funny thing was, it actually snowed in Tokyo this week. And for a brief moment uh, in between COVID cases, um, we went out into the snow in Tokyo. And um, yeah, my son was flying down a slope, pretty much on a tea tray um, at great speed. So I, I see Olympic potential there. <laughs> Fiona, at the top of the, the program, uh, you mentioned, uh, of course, uh, that there are measures, and I'm not sure if they if these are state-sanctioned or this is just uh, wily entrepreneurs, but uh, but obviously something going on in the world of the Ryokan, the, the Japanese uh, con- country, and I guess, of course, fire up uh, traffic uh, and, and, and room stays again. Yeah, well, I think this is a brilliant idea. I mean, you know, a lot of Ryokan, these are these traditional Japanese in, are filled with Japanese travellers. I mean, we know global travel has, has come to a halt as far as Japan is concerned. 
but currently we have a lot of Japan under these quite quite tight restrictions. We're being encouraged not to travel between prefectures. So the real kind of thinking, okay, if people can't come to us, we're going to Tokyo. So a group of eight of really top, top uh, inns here, this is some, you know, the, the creme de la creme, have, have, are doing a series of dinners in, uh, in Tokyo. And what they're doing is they're not just doing the food, they're bringing the head chef for each inn, but also the okami. Um, and, you know, this is the it's a woman, I have to say, usually, who is the sort of, I think you describe them as a manager, but they're so much more than that. They come out in a kimono, they greet you, they look after you, and that person is also coming for these dinners. So you're getting the sake from the region, the food. I mean, these dinners sound absolutely amazing, with, I have to say, a, a price tag to match. But I think it's probably an amazing experience, given that, you know, it's quite difficult to get to these places at the moment. And obviously, we've seen that there are a number of prefectures uh, which are still under some some state of of emergency. Uh, and uh, you know, of course, you and I have spent a lot of time on it uh, as well. Some of these areas are so remote, uh, and we know that you know, when you look into rural Japan, I mean, you can go tens of kilometers and not see anybody, uh, and 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 plenty of uh, of course, not just abandoned inns, but uh, abandoned farms. Is there some type of friction as well like we've seen you know all, all over the world that of course what's happening in a rural world where you have to have the same sets of measures uh that that you're having in an osaka or a kyoto uh, or or nagoya just doesn't really chime um or or do, when you go out into the countryside fiona is it also just i mean we know that the japanese of course are very rule abiding uh but mm. yeah but also we've seen you know as well not not always either so is is there a bit of a rural urban divide well, I think, you know, you also know Japan's very risk averse. And actually, I found, honestly, that the rural areas are rather keen to have the rules. They don't want people coming to visit them from places like Tokyo. So it's not been unpopular. These measures, have, there's not been a lot of protest about measures. I think there'd be more concern if, if uh, travel was just open up within Japan. So I'm not hearing a lot of uh, complaints about that, to be honest. I think people are you know, they feel they feel quite comfortable with the measures in place, particularly in rural areas. You know, the population is much older in the countryside. So there's a bit of concern about exposing to older people. But, you know, I have to say they are trying to reduce these uh, restrictions. They're cutting the number of prefectures under them. It's down. It's going to be down Tokyo and all the surrounding prefectures. They've extended until, I don't know, second week of March, I think now. But, I, uh, you know, they're trying to reduce the number they want to kickstart the economy. I don't think there's just this feeling now that we just want this to go on indefinitely. I, I, I really feel that there's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel now. Uh, I just want to bring Rob in on that because Rob, part of Reuters' breaking views is to obviously look at policy, have a perspective on it. And, and here you have a Europe which is completely reopened. The world's biggest economy is largely reopened, uh, maybe county by county, it could be a little bit different. Um, and then you have, uh, of course, the world's third biggest economy, uh, which is is still yeah, dithering. It seems to me that they're not really looking at the trends of what's happened over here. Is it sort of Japanese exceptionalism uh, in terms of, well, we have to treat the Jap Japanese population different? How are you covering this? It's really difficult. In fact, I was recently uh, looking into actually moving someone to Japan. And someone had told, I was told by our global mobility people that Japan has not been issuing any visas to journalists for, you know, for, to, to move there for 
I don't know, two years now. It strikes, and, and whether that's true, Fiona will know better than, than, than I will, but it strikes me that uh, th- they've, they've decided, this Japanese exceptionalism has always been this case. Remember, they always call themselves like Galapagos, this idea that mm. we're just different. But I mean, it, it, the problem is in a crisis, this thing hasn't worked. It doesn't work, that kind of consensus society, that kind of decision-making, the inability to kind of be decisive, to move quickly. It's really, it's really put places like Japan I mean, Switzerland had a little of that problem early on, one could say. But um, I think it's shown a light on that. Um, sometimes that that kind of consensus thinking doesn't work when you're in a crisis like that. And I, I don't know how Japan comes out of this when you give... Look at the vaccination rates there. They're extremely low relative to the rest of uh, the developed world. And I just, it's hard to imagine that they can just snap their fingers and come out of it. Mm, Fiona, is it, do you have any sense of, of yeah, we can't compare, obviously, Japan. Well, let's say Tokyo to Hong Kong, where we look at sort of two important business centers. Is there, when you look at the expat, talk to the expat community there, a sense of, of, of frustration, though, as well, that this really needs a bit of leadership? Or are people sort of content to say, look, at, let's, let's keep it out, but even knowing that keeping things out is a little bit too late for that now? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, Hong Kong's an interesting comparison because, you you know, as you know, there's so many expats really considering their future their full stop. And they've they've taken a very tough um, zero COVID policy, which I think is, you know, is proving to be almost impossible. Um, I think that, you know, what the situation in Japan is that, that the, you know, the electorate, they wouldn't tolerate the kind of numbers of, of deaths that, that were, you know, the numbers we were seeing in Europe and America. People here just wouldn't accept that that would be incredibly destabilizing. So I think the government did what they felt, you know, would keep the the death numbers down, which actually they have. Um, So the question is now, how do you move Japan back into, uh, you know, real life again? And I I do get the sense that Kishida, the prime minister, is, is, he was talking about it, you know, just this weekend, you know, he he wants to, they're looking at the science, that they're looking to to move Japan out of this, uh, this sort of isolation. There's been a lot of complaints within Japan you know, from the business community, even if the electorate is not really pushing Kishida to, to drop the regulations at the moment. I think, uh, you know, I think it will come quite soon. Fiona Wilson, uh, just before we go, Chandra, very quickly, uh, bef- uh, what, what do we have uh, for poor, isolated, uh, second time round Fiona Wilson in terms of a wine suggestion? Well, I have one word, it is sugar. You know, when you're, you, to be comforted, sugar helps also, always. So take a, a sweet wine, you know, we're we very famous, it's so turn and so, but maybe we can send over from Switzerland some Armini de Vetro, a special indigenous grape, and she does really comforting, like liquid honey wines. Fiona, is that going to do the trick oh, for you, moving, moving into the I next mean, week? I mean, you know, 100%. Send me a bucket load. <laughs> okay. Fiona Wilson, our Bureau Chief uh, in Tokyo. Uh, thanks very much for that. Jondo, uh, we've got Rob across from you. You know, Rob is, uh, I mean, he, he gave you the easiest question. What should one have with, uh, with, with rec- uh, sorry, with, with a fondue this evening? Well, the, the classic thing is in, like, in Switzerland, fondue and dolf. Uh, f- uh, from the Valais, fondue is chasla, dolf is blend with pinot and some other grapes. Um, and important is both, both wines are not heavy, have them light, slightly chilled. And if you want to do an experiment, you take another indigenous grape from the valley, you take a Haida. So take to, to, do a, to do a step ahead in, in aromatics. But, but start with the fondo and the dull. Okay, okay, two bottles of wine then, good. Yep. Excellent. Uh, we're going to uh, head over to, uh, to London uh, now. Andrew is back. Uh, Andrew, we have, you have a big week. It's also a big week as well, because we should say that we've got a bit of a thumper, uh, should be as a touching down from Hanover tomorrow morning, uh, which is our 15th anniversary edition, issue 151. It's, it, how amazing. It's 
15 years. It's both been a long journey and gone in a flash. But, yeah, exciting to see the issue come back in. Uh, it won't be out on newsstands until the following week, I think, but subscribers will get their copies, hopefully, uh, towards the end of, the, of this coming week. And one of the great things we do is go back and visit, revisit lots of the, the stories that we ran in issue one to see what happened to the people and the places that were featured. And it makes for a really fascinating read, I think. Okay, Chandras, what do you have for Andrew for his big, big week ahead? Well, exactly. Important is that it's a whole week. So you, you want to be <laughs> happy a whole week and, spe- and feel the spring also and, and, and uh, be creative. So the spring is usually uh, flowers. It's more aromatic um, aromas in the air. So I, in, in the wine sh- choosing, I will do the same way. I will go for a muscat or a Riesling or a Sauvignon Blanc. And Sauvignon Blanc, you have the very nice examples from the Steiermark. And I recently, well, I filled my fridge with um, from, from the Sattlerhof, from the Steiermark. And you will see they have not too much alcohol and already in the nose you are seduced and then you you, you have a, a, a gentle spring week with a lot of work. Great. Well, I, I, I'm going to take up your offer. <laughs> and, get Andrew, very and, and it does conjure an image. You know, you've, you've been you've been around to to, to Shea Chandra uh, and that, that vision of her filling up the fridge. Right. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of picturing like an 18 wheeler sort of pulling up to the back of the house as well. Yeah, and, I mean, it's a very big fridge. <laughs> uh, just uh, jumping over to uh, Emma, uh, you're there's something about a train journey and, and a discreet lady's yes. bottle involved, correct? Abs- that's absolutely right. I mean, it's, let's be honest, this is not the train to San Moritz. Well, this is a tricky one, Emma, because, you know, to drink in public, um, mm. it's not so simple. And Do I have to avoid it this time, um, Chandra? Well, well you know, there's always um, tricks you can do. Maybe you have a, an empty <laughs> cabin and nobody sees you, uh, and it's all about the packaging. Uh, so... So maybe you in the nice hampers in Fordham and Mason, maybe you buy a nice hamper and then you hide it in this hamper. Um, but something you can do on a train ride, of course, it has to be a small bottle. You cannot be alone as a woman with a big bottle. Um, <laughs> they're, they're like sh- champagne houses launch some little bottles you drink with straw, straw holes, straws. Mm. Okay. And, you know, why don't have something like this in the purse and then it looks like you drink something else. Thank you, Chandra. Elegant. Is that good? Will bubbles work on the train? Yeah, yeah. Anything even, works on a train. Faster. Okay. Yeah, it works okay. faster. <laughs> Excellent. Um, you, just uh, Andrew, if you if you're still there, uh, very very quickly, just you mentioned as well. You you're kind of teasing our listeners a little bit, saying that there's a, a, a book going out the door. I don't think we've talked about that book because we've been so focused on the Nordics. Uh, but what's what's coming up next? Yeah, we're starting telling people a little bit about the book now. It's it's a book about the reportage work we've done, the photography that we've done over the past 15 years and and going forwards as well. So it's a big coffee table book with amazing photography from all all the leading photographers who've worked for us. And wow, it really makes you realize the number of places we've been. Now, some of these are really historical moments now, being in Aleppo long before the Civil War, seeing, knowing what's happened to that country. But other things are just fun moments, being at festivals and being with people on the beach. So it's, it's a really great lineup of, uh, of work. Very good. Well, of course, we have Nordics out, uh, new 15th anniversary edition, which is going to, of course, be hitting uh, newsstands next week. And I guess we're probably six weeks away from that one. Andrew Tuck in London, also Rob Cox and Chandra Court here in Zurich. Emma Nelson back in London as well. Thanks very much. Uh, also, thanks to Isabella Musavizade-Smith, having trouble with that today, over in Copenhagen, also our Fiona Wilson in Tokyo. Producers today, Emma Nelson, Marcus Sippi, our studio managers in Zurich, Julia Clavins, and Nora Hall in London. I'm Tyler Brule. Have a very good week. Goodbye.